welcome back. The current time is 9.01 a.m. now on this Monday, the 28th of December. And welcome to Community Pulse, your locally produced program on the coronavirus pandemic here in mid-Missouri. Brought to you live from the downtown KOPN studios by your listener-supported and volunteer-operated community radio station. As a reminder of our production schedule, you can catch Community Pulse live Monday and Wednesdays from 9 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. We then post all the backdated episodes to our Facebook profile, also to our website, and you can find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. Today on the program, we have Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, and as is often the case at this juncture in the calendar year, we are taking a retrospective look back on this year, a year like uh, no other. And it all began in March when the world forever changed, the first week in March there. The coronavirus, of course, discovered in December 2019. But there were isolated clusters until a full-fledged global outbreak then. And as a reminder, we uh, were doing five days a week of Community Pulse there for the initial eight weeks of the global pandemic. After that, we scaled back to four days a week and then eventually to two days a week sort of inverted there. We uh, did less programming as the virus surge reached uh, mid-Missouri here. But in any event, that that all adds up to about 140 shows that we've done for you this calendar year. And here to discuss all of it and to look back with me is Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, probably one of the hardest working volunteers we have here at KOPN. Dr. Alleman, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. Um, it is a little, and it's just a little almost exhausting to think back on it. And I'm just going to, you know, uh, pull the calendar back a little bit. The reports from Wuhan were available to us as Americans in December. And as somebody who, I don't know why, but I follow these uh, pandemics. I remember following uh, the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic, uh, in the Congo and um and in Western Africa, uh, and so I was—I think it's because um, I've been taught my entire career to pay attention. A pandemic could happen; it's happened before. It would be better to be ready to be informed. Um, and yeah, we did do this inverse thing that we were—we took more precautions and we had more radio shows early in the in the pandemic. And I think that that's when people had the most questions. Um, Indeed, I think as we come, um, you know, deeper into it, most people have the basics about airborne versus uh, uh, droplets, about whether, you know, we need to wash our groceries, um, what about mask wearing, uh, how effective is that, are different masks more effective than others? There were so many questions, you know, how close can we get to people, what's safe, what's not safe, what does safe even mean? Um yeah, so, you know, how do you get testing? What kind of, you know, what do the tests mean? And now we're moving into many questions about vaccines, which I expect will increase a lot once the general public actually needs to make decisions about whether they will um, receive the vaccine and when and what to do about special populations like young adults, teens, children, pregnant women, um, uh, women who are lactating. Um, so, you know, I think that what we've done, I, at least what I've been hoping we've been doing, is being as responsive as possible to the community in a way that really no other um, organization in Missouri, well, I'll just call it Central Missouri, has done. And is that we, because we totally respond to our listeners 
um, we've been able to shift in flexibility about, um, you know, how many of these shows we do and what what do we talk about. Indeed. Well, I think you brought up an excellent point that uh, for three full months after this um, virus, this novel virus was actually discovered, it fell squarely into the somebody else's problem category for a lot of uh, people who were living in what we might term the Western world. Um, They believe that just like SARS or MERS or maybe the Ebola virus as well, this was just simply something that was affected, affecting uh, populations half a world away. And even when it came to Italy in February, um, I can recall that uh, a lot of my family and friends there in, in Germany were not overtly concerned. They just believed that it was going to stay there, that it wasn't going to cross the Alps, and that it was uh, <clears throat> you know, a matter of sort of an aging population uh, fighting with a, particular, a particularly uh, virulent uh, flu strain. Suddenly, if we turn back the clock, in the first week of March, uh, it goes global, and everyone is forced to reckon with this. So perhaps we can begin with some of the first questions that people had about this virus when it became apparent that we all had to deal with it. Yeah, and I think the first one was, how do I know whether I have it? You know, that that was the question on a lot of people's minds. There were a lot of people in central Missouri who had... There was a crud that went through. I know that's a very specific medical term, but people were miserably sick. <laughs> <laughs> and they, many people still, you know, had an, an illness early in, you know, be, before July and are, weren't able to get testing and um, are convinced that they have had the, the illness. Um, and I'm going to say that I swabbed not myself. I ordered a bunch of swabs. I did do. I did swab about 15 people initially before we came up with a better system. And some of them, I'm telling you, I looked at them. They looked sick. Like they looked miserable. And that you know, I take care of people who aren't really whiny or complainy. They're pretty hardy folk, and they were looking like this was taking them down. And and I we swabbed. I think uh, over 200 people before we got our first positive. So I don't. I think the test is better than would have missed that many. So I'm just going to remind people that there was something going around making people very, very miserable that tested negative for both influenza and for COVID-19. Yes. Not, so we not, still don't know what that is. Not to jump but, too far ahead, but um, yeah. when you look at the statistics and you estimate that we'll probably lose in this country, I don't know, maybe 500,000 people to this virus, it's possible. Yeah. That's almost five times as much as we lose to the annual flu, to the regular flu. So. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we have learned, when, I think people were wondering how worried to be. Um, do I have it? How worried should I be? And what can I do? to make, to reduce my chance of infecting it. And um, from the beginning, my mind, it, I'm sure it's, it's in self-interest as well. I'm not trying to make myself noble, but I've just tried to stay laser focused on not having our hospitals collapse because really bad things happen if your hospital stops working. People start to die of things like appendicitis and what would otherwise be very survivable heart attacks um, because they can't get hospital care. And I'm a doctor who, I don't even have hospital privileges, Peter. I am so motivated to keep people out of the hospital, and I believe in taking care of many things, including childbirth, outside of the hospital. And yet I 
uh, maybe even more than people who don't. I just really value having a hospital for those things that we don't do well outside the hospital. And so I, I also care about and have friends and colleagues who work in hospitals. Um, and I don't want that. I wish that we had spared them what they're having to do right now because I think it will change them for their lifetime. I think this is the, I'm not saying that they can't heal. Healing is always possible. But now these people, if they want to recover, you know, full and vigorous mental health, many of them will need to do some pretty intense trauma work to, to rid this from their, um, from their lives and psyche. That is and, or to integrate it. Such an important point. And I'd like to emphasize that as well, because because as we look back on this, so many people are going to say, did we really need to take such draconian measures um, when the virus really wasn't even here? When Dr. Alleman was swabbing, you know, one positive out of uh, 200 tests. Right. The answer exactly. is the answer is yes, because uh, from a societal standpoint, what we were trying to do was ensure that the ICUs didn't overflow and that people didn't need to right. have to die needlessly. Um, People will die, of course, from the virus, and it's unavoidable. But the worst thing that we can do is put our public health professionals in a situation where they have to decide who gets a ventilator, who uh, lives and dies uh, in this sense. So that's what we were uh, – that's what everyone uh, on the globe was trying to do via this global and lockdown. What we're, what we're still trying to do. So I think we're seeing some of that happen in California Mm-hmm. I think we saw it get close in New York City early on. Um, I think we saw, you know, we heard stories of that in Italy. Um, and so and I think that January and February are going to be our most difficult months from that standpoint. And so I know many people, you know, we're doing a look back and a look forward because the calendar's changing and many people will be having big bonfires and you know, trying to maybe probably sage in their homes and doing many meaningful rituals to try to rid ourselves of um, what feels like a curse of this year. Mm-hmm. But I want to say to people, don't, you know, <laughs> don't, don't let your guard down yet. <laughs> yes. Like, well, you know, let go of the year if you need to. But I really, you know, I guess I have some disappointing news of if you thought that it's all about 2020. Um, that uh, I think January and February are going to maybe our most difficult month. Very relieved that um, the federal government has, you know, uh, the two branches of the federal government that deal with lawmaking have um, arranged for there to be ongoing federal support. It hasn't been enough, um, and it has had some major holds, from my opinion. But the idea that maybe we weren't going to have that continue after uh, the turn of the year was really sobering to me that it's this federal support allows for the um, drive-through testing um, that we depend on so much to know what's going on to be free so that um, that that money to pay for the test is not a barrier for people to get tested. There are many other barriers um, that are difficult to, to relieve, but, you know, money is always the easiest solution to easiest problem to solve. And I know a lot of people don't believe that, but um, it's, you know, like trying to overcome people's reluctance to having a, no, a, a swab in their nose. That takes a long conversation. Trying to, you know, help people overcome their concern oh, I about, a... I can't, I can't stay home for two weeks. I don't want to find out that I have it. Yeah. You, yeah. you also bring up the point that um, 
the biggest danger that we're facing now with uh, so many places in a soft lockdown and so many public places under restrictions and precautions, what's really spreading the virus at this juncture, and this is maybe more true in Germany than it is in the States, which Germany is in a, in a full hard lockdown now, but cases are not decreasing because they're being spread via private parties. Um, this right. is what's happening. And not just and not just parties. I think when we use the words parties, we tend to to focus on our young people in their 20s. And I think they're getting a lot of shame and a stigma, which isn't legitimate. Right. It's, it's family gatherings. It's okay. having your 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 sister over. It's, you know, having going to visit your, your parents. Mm. Um, I know that people are trying really hard to be careful, but. So I think that there's some things coming together. I think we're all getting tired. I think that many of us have um, done some things. We've had some people over. We've, you know, we've maybe done a backyard barbecue. Uh, we've maybe had some people into our homes. Uh, maybe we went to a wedding or a funeral, and we didn't get sick and nobody else did. And those are the kinds of things that sort of give us some false confidence. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that there's this new variant that they're calling, I don't know, Many things to call it. I don't want it. It has been identified in Kent, England, mm -hmm. may not have originated there. Um, uh, apparently, the United States is doing very little genomic surveillance compared to the United Kingdom and Denmark. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are not you would think that with the most cases we would be finding the most genetic variant. And if we are, I'm not hearing about it. And I've gone looking for it. Um, and so this new genetic variant that the United Kingdom um, isolated and they have also seen in Denmark is much more um, easily transmissible. So it has modified the protein. Uh, it sounds like it's, I'm trying not to anthropomorphize a virus. The protein spike ha has modified, genetically shifted, and um, we think that it's just become more effective at um, connecting to that ACE2 receptor that is the way it, you know, sort of grabs hold and swings itself into our noses. Um, and we don't think that it is more dangerous once you get it, but what that means is that it is likely that case numbers are going to, wherever this goes, it seems that case numbers are increasing. So um, uh, we think we're seeing that in London and Southeast England right now. Um, and it was initially uh, isolated and identified in September. And so many places are closing their borders and shutting down flights and stuff. And I um, am concerned that that's going to cost us a lot of emotional hardship. Uh, we're going to pay a big price for that. And we don't know whether the horse is already out of the barn. So it's all these are the difficult decisions that our leaders have to make. Um, but uh, and, and one of the challenges, this controversial about shutting borders, one of the public health folks are usually not very excited about shutting borders because what happens is if you announce that borders are shutting, you get a rush to the bar barriers and um, the people who make those impulsive decisions are often not thinking other things through. And they they uh, when you rush the boundary barriers, you know, the borders, there's just going to be more spread. And so. Um, Anyway, so we're going to, you know, it's very likely that we'll have a more contagious virus in January and February. Um, 
And, and, and you did point um, out um, you did point out that this doesn't uh, the mutation this genetic mutation which is is common uh, with such viri uh, does yeah. not make the vaccine any less effective because it doesn't it's, it doesn't make for a more dangerous virus it simply makes for a more contagious one correct so those are those are all those are all questions we have not for sure identified but it appears it is more con- more easily transmissible. It appears that it is no more likely to result in serious illness, hospitalization, ventilation, or death. And we don't know yet about the vaccine. Mm-hmm. It, it, we think that the vaccine is still going to work for this, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. And we are not seeing so far uh, an uptick in people with recurrent illness. So we think that the immunity that you get, the protection you get from having had the disease or having received the vaccine... So far, the arrows are either we don't have information or it's pointing towards reassurance that mm-hmm. the immunity we develop will will trend, will you know cover this virus as well. well. Of course, we it's we can only the virus. yeah we can only learn so much in a short nine months. Uh, but um, yeah, and we've only been vaccinating the public for two weeks. Precisely three weeks uh, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So. Um, you know, it we the, the United Kingdom did. Start vaccinating people um, first. It not before Russia and China. Okay, but of the of the countries that have been very transparent about their data about how they're developing the vaccines, um, the United Kingdom has really been um, early adopting about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, well then, um, so in keeping a little bit with our theme, uh, I, I suppose the most important thing we learned about uh, was how this was transmitted. Um, primarily through the air. I mean, in the beginning, we were wearing right. lots of nitrile latex gloves and washing our groceries and worried about contact surfaces and everything. Perhaps explain why that became a little bit less of a worry as we found out more about this virus. Yeah. Um, uh, what we've discovered is that, you know, we've gotten a lot of data from various things. So people doing sort of bench work science where they spread the virus on surfaces and measure where they can find it again. Um, the problem is that viruses are hard to culture. So usually what we're doing is looking for their genetic material. And we don't know whether there's just like virus refuse laying around or whether those are actually live viruses. Um, and then we... Um, captured it out of the air to see if we could then culture it. Um, and what we're finding is that most of the trans, and then we're also, but the most, the most helpful part of our information about that has been from the information we've gotten from listening to people's stories. What did, what did you do for the last two weeks before you, before you got sick? You know, where, where were you and what did you do and, and what are the patterns in that? Um, and that is not as exact as we would like, but we think that it is from um, breathing in other people's air, especially if they were singing or shouting or talking, mm-hmm. um, and especially if we were in a closed environment. Um, so what we know is that mask wearing um, is associated with a reduction in transmission. Um, we, you know, there was a controversial study that was done in March and April in Denmark where they did randomize uh, people to being told to wear masks and provided with masks or just routine care. And there didn't see a big difference, but, you know, 40% of the people in the mask group didn't wear masks. So it, it's not, it wasn't a really, it, it, 
the intervention was asking people to wear masks, and that didn't seem to change things a lot. I think we've seen in the United States, and Ian, you can comment about what we've seen, what you've noticed in Europe, that that there can be pushback, and so some people who are told to wear masks don't wear masks. But it appears that when, in in environments where there's a, a high prevalence of mask wearing, there is a lower chance of transmission. Well, I mean, given that we have, that this is spread predominantly through aerosols and droplets and whatnot, I mean, we found, I think we have learned that social distancing measures and masking requirements are the best defense that we can come up with. Uh, or, but hand, don't forget hand washing. Hand washing as well. Yes, of course. And ventilation. And ventilation. In the winter, I'm we have worked so hard to make our buildings energy efficient and we need to start to open the windows again. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And one of the fascinating stories I heard is that apparently radiators were a technology developed right after the uh, 1918 influenza epidemic so that you could, and they were usually put underneath windows so that you would have a heat source under an open window. So people could be warm but the, the building could be ventilated. And, you know, across the country, we've been tearing out these radiators because they're clunky and they're not energy efficient and all, for many good reasons. And now I'm sitting, I'm like, how do I get a heater right underneath my window? <laughs> well, you can get a space heater. Uh, can you mm. not? Yeah, it is not the same as a mass heater. Ah. Just, you know, then there, yeah, anyway. So <laughs> these are these are the things we're discovering is that the, um, and, one of the things we've learned is that um, when when public leaders, when political leaders make it a rule that you have to wear a mask, even if there's not any fine or punishment and the police aren't knocking on doors, mm. mask wearing goes way up and transmission goes way down. And I wish, you know, I have enough of a libertarian spirit in me that I wish that that weren't <laughs> true. You know, I just want people to be told what to do and get recommendations and know that people will step up if you'll tell them what to do. And right. Um, there are a significant number of people who will just do what's easy, all of us. Humans do what's easier. And if you make it just a little bit harder to do the thing that we don't want you to do that's not good for your health, you know, if we, we've got smoking ordinances where you can't buy, you know, tobacco if you're a young person in the city of Columbia. You could just drive out of the city limits, but people don't. Mm. Some people do. Okay, there are some people who are just deliberate rebels. And God bless them, they change the world. Yeah. But most of us just won't do the thing that is harder. Uh, you know, you can, mm. you can decrease by about 20% the number of calories that people eat in a cafeteria if you don't give them a tray. Mm. Even if they can still go back and get another plate. If you just make it a little bit harder. So if we make things just a little bit harder for people to gather, people, people don't gather as much. So, the, so the, it's been a real disappointment in Colombia that our, and in the state that our leaders have not, um, for me, that the leaders have not made mask ordinances statewide, and that our local, um, our local leaders have, 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 for whatever reason, decided not to uh, close down bars and restaurants um, and coffee shops, which are places that are highly associated, according to science, with um, transmission. Hmm. Um, so the reason it's not that there's anything wrong with these businesses. I, I, I wish them well. There are many of those kinds of businesses in Colombia that I, I value deeply and I, you know, I feel for the people who are trying to run them. And at the same time, there are places where people sit inside and take their masks off and then they talk to each other. 
And it's not just the people at your own table that get exposed. So, you know, we, we argued, we, we debated and we wondered about, well, is it just droplets or is it all aerosol? So, you know, there's this whole, how big, a, you know, a bit of fluid floating through the air does the virus need to hitch a ride on? And the virus does better and likes better these larger droplets, but can hitch a ride on aerosols. And so six feet is better than three feet. But we've got documented um, live virus 20 feet away from a, a person inside. Yeah. So we're, you know, how far do you need to stay away? It depends on how, how important it is for you to not get sick. How about the, um, you know, perhaps another important lesson that we learned about, and, and this is, <clears throat> again, I mean, you've, we, we don't want to make it a political issue, but uh, the importance of getting tested. Uh, hopefully, yes. uh, uh, if you have access uh, to a test, and someone in your workplace uh, is confirmed with the virus or someone, you know, in your social circle is, even if you're asymptomatic, it's kind of an important thing uh, to get a test. And I've had this argument with family members as well who say, oh, they're not sticking something up my nose. As someone who's been tested uh, a couple of times, it really isn't that much of a hassle. I mean, they, they have the thing up your nose for uh, 0.5 seconds uh, and it then is, it's over. Um, it <laughs> Yeah, it is. I think there are. And so that's the thing. We're developing better testing. So, you know, in the beginning, we didn't have any tests. Then we had some tests. We had to really um, be careful about who got them. We were only testing symptomatic people. It took us a while to realize that 20 to 40 percent of people who are wandering around contagious don't have any symptoms at all. Some of them are going to get symptomatic and some of them are not going to get symptomatic. There's a wide variation in what kind of illness this virus can cause, so um, all the way from zero to um, to death and everything in between. So some people are like, well, I only have the one symptom. Okay, well, it could be it could be that one symptom. We are developing saliva tests. Um, one of the things, uh, those are not widely available in Colombia that I'm aware of yet. So you spit in a tube instead of having a nose something put up your nose. I'd kind of rather just. Go ahead and have somebody put them under my nose. The most comfortable has been the self-swabs that are done through uh, doineedacovid19test.org. Mm -hmm. um, so it's through the state. And those you have to schedule in advance. You don't need a doctor's, a doctor's um, order, but they coach you through sticking the, nose, the swab in your own nose, and they only have it, like, just inside your nostril. So the coaching is in, insert the, not the swab until you meet the first bit of resistance, then they have you twirl it for three seconds. They count it for you. Do it in this other other nostril, and I found that to be like it's, it's probably easier to do that than brush my teeth. Yeah. So, um, so we got the testing. The other thing I want to say is one of the things that's developed is therapeutics. We argued about hydroxychloroquine, which I don't know that we've still had a really good test about it. I'm not. I, I think that that's still, in my mind, an unsolved question. If it works early in the illness, I don't think we've trans that there are. There's a antidepressant medicine whose name has escaped my head that has shown uh, promise in a very small study for people early in the illness. And then there are some people who are um, uh, investigating ivermectin, which is an antiparasitic drug that is used routinely in horses and cows and some in humans, um, for early treatment in the illness, we've gotten, it seems like the, the, the data for me is very convincing that vitamin D is useful as a preventative and as a therapeutic. 
and that people who are deficient in vitamin D are way more likely to get um, to get serious illness. Uh, vitamin D deficiency is about 80% of African American people in the United States, and statistically, it might account for most or all of the disparities and outcomes we see among race uh, because it's more like 50% of white people are deficient in vitamin D and uh, people who are given vitamin D do better in a respiratory illness and better in COVID-19 than people who do not take it. So the recommendation is between two and 6,000 international units every day as a supplement, even if you get plenty of sunshine during the summer um, and uh, you would increase that for to 10,000 international units a day for the first 10 days of your illness if you get sick with it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very exciting, common, cheap, easy-to-take um, intervention. And then we've also found that um, dexamethasone, a cheap and easily available steroid, can be given intravenously once people start to get a little bit sick. And we've discovered that the, the, they've refined uh, their techniques about um, when to put people on ventilators and how to manage the ventilator settings so that while our hospitalizations are increasing, our ICU use and ventilation use has not been increasing as rapidly because we're being more, uh, we're better informed about how to use those technologies better. Well, we um, talked about yeah. we, we talked about precautions. Um, we talked about testing, and we also talked about therapeutics. So we covered three topics today. We're running a little yeah. bit short on time, uh, but right. yes. as we, um, I do want to obviously talk about the next uh, two to three months of the new year because the virus is not going anywhere simply because the calendar changes. Uh, right. We still, any way you look at it, we're in for a very, very rough two to three months. Nobody has a crystal ball, but that's a that's you know a, a mm-hmm. decent estimate based on the data that we're looking at, uh, based on all of this. So close to the goal line, it seems. You know, we have so much hope. Don't uh, give up. Yes. Don't stop. <laughs> I mean, keep going. <laughs> New Year's. We need to celebrate the turning of the year, but not together in parties, not indoors. I mean, you can celebrate indoors, but not with people who don't live with you. So let's celebrate virtually for the um, for the New Year, so that January and February are not the darkest months that we can imagine. Yeah. Um, the one bit of of silver lining is that I know you're not we're not supposed to say this, but I think we may be getting to some herd immunity. We've five uh, percent of the United States population has been documented and diagnosed with COVID-19. Yes, you and mentioned earlier that. in the year, we did antibody surveys to look at how many cases are we missing. And we're looking at we've, we're undercounting by a factor of five to 10. Well, the, so we may be actually looking at 25 to 50 percent of our population has had this disease and is protected from the from either the disease at all or from serious complications. And so I am, and, and while we need 70 to, to maybe 80% with this new, more infectious variant to really see this disease, the incidence of the disease really diminish, we are going to, it's not like an all or nothing thing. We're going to start to see some protection. Sadly, for the next month or so, we are going to more rapidly be getting people to protection from the disease by infection than by uh, vaccination. But um, I'm hoping that. Um, eventually the vaccination part will keep up, catch up. So we've got vaccines coming 
right now healthcare workers are getting vaccinated and uh, residents and workers in long-term care facilities, nursing homes and um, assisted living centers. And then the next is um, uh, going to be people who are vulnerable, so people who are elderly and with other comorbidities. The actual list of that has not been determined as far as I know. And I've had a lot of questions like, well, how do I know how to get myself in line? And I don't think anybody knows yet. I don't think it's time to get in line. I don't think any lines are forming. So um, calling to ask about that just um, places another burden. So if people could wait, as soon as we know, we will be saying. Well, I mean, those are two really good pieces of news heading into the new year. We have the vaccination and we have now that that herd immunity number is not a definitive number. I mean, I I believe you said between. Yeah, you said between 25 and 50 percent. That's a pretty large (laughs) estimate there. But but still, it it is it is good uh, news heading into the new year. And I I wanted to, as we bring this uh, show to a close, to emphasize the point of why continue to take precautions, why continue to uh, adhere to restrictions and things like this in the in the COVID era, uh, as it has become uh, known. The most important thing is not f- overfilling those hospitals and putting people. I mean, if if we yes. uh, reach ICU capacity, then we get to the point where we have. Uh, hypothetically at least well more than hypothetically more than theoretically people will die unnecessarily and that's the problem that's why we uh, must continue yeah and, to- and just to be just to put a very fine point on it people will be dying because they can't get medical care that in an other in any other situation would be readily available to them we got big issues in this country about access to health care mm. we don't need to, to create another one Absolutely. Well, Dr. Yeah. Alleman, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. You're for what so welcome. We'll thank be, you, Peter. Yeah. Will, the, will you All be right. back on Wednesday or is that... Uh, Jenny uh, will Jenny. be there Be there on Wednesday. And I wish I knew which. I think I know what she's planning. Um, if you, if people like this year-end review, uh, Val Bader and Tim O'Connor, my co-hosts of Your Health Matters, and I will be on Your Health Matters at 6 p.m. on Sunday, on Wednesday, to talk about a year-end review, not just locally about the pandemic, but more globally about health in general. Absolutely. So, well, Dr. Allman, uh, this being your last uh, episode of Community Pulse for the calendar year, thank you for all of the hard work you've done across all of these hundreds of shows. Oh, you are so welcome, <laughs> and Peter. Not- thank for all of you for be showing up to be excellent engineers. As we emphasize all the time, this is a volunteer-operated uh, community radio station. <clears throat> this is uh, your community members, your friends and neighbors uh, getting together and keeping this resource alive. And Dr. Alleman has been so amazing to us uh, throughout this entire pandemic, providing us with great information. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in to Community Pulse today. And as Dr. Alleman mentioned, we will be back on Wednesday for our official final show of the calendar year. You can catch us online on the Facebook feed, also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We got 51% coming up next. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again on Wednesday. Please stay safe and stay informed, Columbia.